This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today on the podcast, we've got a special guest for you, and you've heard from him on our show before, but it was only a short period, and that is Mike Ritland. So Mike Ritland is a retired Navy SEAL. He spent 12 years in the Navy SEALs. He's also a world-renowned canine trainer. He's been doing that for over 20 years. He's the host of the Mike Drop podcast, which we are so indebted to Mike because part of our success with this podcast is because I was invited to be a guest by him on his show, and we did that earlier this summer, and it's worked out really, really well for us. We're so thankful to Mike for doing that. He's also the founder of multiple businesses, so Tricos International. That's personal protection dogs. He has team dog dog training programs. He has fueled by team dog food and treats. That's what Roman the Giant, my best friend in the world, that is what he eats. He's also got the Warrior Dog Foundation, which we talk about here in a little bit, which helps provide care for retired working canines. He's also a best-selling author. So this dude just does tons of stuff. So he's written best-selling books like Team Dog, How to Train Your Dog the Navy Seal Way, and Trident Canine Warriors, My Tale from Training the uh, Training, uh, sorry, My Tale from the Training Ground to the Battlefield with Elite. Navy SEAL canines. He was on episode 225 of this podcast where he talked very briefly about his ideas and thoughts as to kind of what was going on on the ground in Afghanistan. And a lot of you guys have reached out to say, man, I really liked how forthright he was with everything that he was saying. And, you know, that's just his way right? He's very forthright with the things that he says. And that's why so many of you liked his opinions there on Afghanistan. But this is what I'm going to tell you about in terms of these two podcasts. Well, I guess I let the cap out of the bag right there. This is part one of two. Okay. Because he wrote a new book, and so that's going to be coming out next Tuesday. So if you're listening to this right now, next Tuesday, if you're listening to this on time, he's got a new book coming out, and he gets into a lot of political topics. He gets into a lot of very divisive topics. And as I was preparing for our interview, I was like, man, I don't really want to kind of give short shrift to his you know, work in the Navy SEALs and his work with, with working dogs and all these different things. So I was like, I asked him, I was like, hey, can we do one just about kind of you as a person and some of the things that you've done with dogs and some of those cool stories, and then do another one where we get more into your opinion opinions and where you can kind of get out from your, Hey, you're just a dog trainer, uh, you know, tag on your shirt and you can kind of actually go into some of these other topics. And he was absolutely down to do that. So this is part one. And then part two is going to be coming out here next Tuesday. But here's the thing that I will say from the very beginning, I've told you that he's very forthright. Okay. So major blinking language warning. Okay. If you are triggered by foul language and not really foul language, but swearing or cursing of any kind, that is just how Mike talks. Okay. So I know this is a Christian podcast. A lot of people uh, that listen to this are Christians and maybe you're offended by that language and I completely understand and I completely get it, but we've made a dedication early on in this podcast that whatever people want to say, we want to give them the ability to say that as long as it's within reason. And so again, if you're very offended by language like that, you might want to skip this episode, but for everybody else, just there's your warning. If you're listening to this with kid ears near you or something like that. So there, have I sufficiently checked all the boxes that I need to check in order for you guys to actually listen to this episode? So guys, I'm very excited to bring on my friend, Mike, but without further ado, let's get into it. Mike Ritland, welcome back to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate uh, the, the re-invite, if you will. 
Yeah, absolutely. Here's the thing is I don't normally do little miniature episodes on my podcast, but I got to say my audience was very impressed with your first performance on botching Afghanistan. And it was a performance because you didn't actually mean any of those things that you said, right? So you just kind of made it up off the top of your head, right? Yeah, I was reading cue cards. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But we're going to get into a lot of stuff today because there's a lot to talk about. But the cool thing is, is that we're going to be getting you back on here very, very shortly to talk about an upcoming book that you have. So we'll leave that to the imaginations of the listeners for right now. But the first thing that I like to do with an anybody that's a veteran, uh, whenever you come on this podcast is I want to know, why did you join the military? Cause I've talked about all the time, how, how I regret having not served and how my life just didn't kind of end up that way. But for you personally, growing up in Iowa and all that, was it always your desire that you wanted to be in the military one day? Did you want to be a commando? Did you want to be a Navy SEAL? How'd all that work out? Yeah. So the, uh, my, both of my grandfathers were in world war two, um, on my dad's side, he was in the army in the, in the European front. And then, uh, my mom's dad was, uh, in the Navy, uh, in the Mediterranean. And so kind of at an early age, I, I found myself being, uh, I would say fascinated and enamored by their service that, that time period, you know, the world war two timeframe, uh, to this day still, uh, you know, just kind of is a bit of a, a romanticization of, of uh, history. And, and I just kind of look back on it and think, you know, I wish I had been around then. Uh, and I've just always been really fascinated with that time period uh, and just, you know, history in general, military history uh, in particular. And so I wouldn't say that at a young age, I was necessarily, uh, you know, driven to, to serve. But, and in fact, when I was in junior high, uh, when the first Gulf War kicked off, uh, I actually was pretty, uh, pretty apprehensive and, and kind of nervous about the the thought or prospect of having to go to war. Uh, you know, I, I always liked that that facet of, of uh, our history, but I, I just kind of, you know, was was almost scared of of the thought of having to to go to war uh, as a you know sixth seventh grader. And uh, as I you know matured and got a little bit older and, and started to kind of come into my own in high school, then that's when I, I wanted to do that. Um, and so it really wasn't until about halfway through high school where I really kind of made the conscious decision to where that that's what I wanted to do. And, and I spent the second half of high school really training and, and you know reading books and watching recruiting videos. And you know at that time the internet wasn't really a thing. Uh, yet, or, or certainly, I mean, it, was, it was just kind of coming online, and so uh, there, there weren't the resources that, that there are today. You know, there was a handful of books, uh, you know, a handful of, of VHS cassette tapes of SEAL workouts and stuff, and that was really about it. You know, so uh, but I, I, you know, just kind of took everything I could, uh, you know, in terms of what that knowledge was, and. And applied it to the best of my ability, and, and then as soon as I graduated high school, it's, I was still 17, so I had to wait uh, until I turned 18, and, and then went to boot camp right after that. But uh, yeah, that, you know, like I said, it wasn't like this lifelong thing necessarily, but I, I was definitely inspired by my grand grandfathers, um, and just kind of felt like, you know, even though my parents uh, they had offered, you know, to send me to college, and and I even had a couple of uh, swimming scholarships. Uh, at, at some smaller schools that uh, that had been kicked around or whatever, but you know, for me, I, I felt a uh, a lack of of you know, kind of that that entitlement sense of of thinking that my parents should pick up the tab, and and I felt if I'm going to go to college, I I should pay for it or I want to pay for it, and uh, and just kind of wanted to get out on my own and, and do something for the greater good, uh, you know, at, at a pretty early age. 
That's that's an interesting thing that I've hear that I hear from a lot of people that were in the military is that they kind of had that inkling from an early age. A lot of the people, especially that go into the special operations community, these aren't people that just like ah, I just graduated from college and there wasn't anything else to do, so I went ahead and did this. It's it's a little bit more planned out than that. But just very, just curious, just quickly, you only served for twelve years. I say only you served for twelve years, but typically you hear about people going for their twenty or doing something different. But for you specifically, what was kind of the impetus behind you getting out at, around that? 12 year mark there was a couple things there was three main main factors that the the first and foremost that was really the catalyst to the other two finishing uh you know the or closing the deal of me getting out was uh was getting valley fever so it's a a fungal lung infection that i contracted in the desert and uh and i lost uh, about 40 percent of my lung capacity uh and that that's basically permanent you know it's it scars that that lung tissue and, and makes it uh you know, pretty, pretty much impossible for it to grow back. I mean, barring some crazy new age science or, or uh, medical technology that comes online, maybe that, that has the ability to repair it in the future, you know, I'm, I'm kind of stuck with that. And so uh, that was the first thing that really kind of changed my trajectory mentally as to what, what I was going to do. I mean, I'd planned on staying in uh, longer. I'd planned on uh, wanting to screen and, and go to, uh, to dev group and, and, you know, do dog stuff there. And, and, uh, that all just kind of got derailed. So, uh, at that point, you know, I knew that even though I made, you know, a full normal recovery in terms of getting back to being able to do day-to-day stuff, I knew that uh, I would probably be a liability physically to, to my team. Uh, and I, I didn't really want to even, uh, test the water with that. Uh, they offered a medical retirement at the time, uh, when I was diagnosed with it and, and first was uh, in and out of the hospital with it. And, uh, you know, for me at that time, I was like, well, shit, I don't, I don't have uh, a degree. I, you know, I've got my first child on the way. I like, I, this wasn't my plan. I have nothing lined up. Um, you know, I, I don't really know what the hell I would do. You can't live off of a medical retirement with a family really. I mean, it's, it's like $2,300 a month. And so, uh, you know, I was just like, is there anything else we can do? You know, and so I was very fortunate to to work for a couple of really good guys at the time, and and uh, they worked some backroom, uh, you know, upper enlisted deals, and, and got me uh, over to the basic side because I, I had to be away from anything that was irritating to your lungs, which is pretty much every job in the SEAL teams, minus being a, a buds instructor. So um, I was fortunate enough to, to go over there for a couple of years and, and kind of make as good a recovery as I could. And then at that point, uh, I, I, I could have tried to go back to a SEAL team, like I said, I, uh, but I, I just, I, I didn't feel confident in, uh, in my own ability to, to really be an asset and not be a liability. So, uh, that was the kind of the big thing on top of that, you know, I, I we had had our first child at that point and then, uh, we had had a, a subsequent second. And uh, so that certainly played a role of me not wanting to, to be gone for their entire childhoods and, and what have you. Uh, and then last but certainly not least is that just as I got more senior in the military, the more I kind of saw behind the curtain and, uh, and really didn't like what I saw. Uh, and no different not to get into politics uh, too much because I know we're going to do that on the next episode. But, um, you know, seeing what you're seeing now with general Milley and, and, uh, just a lot of the upper echelon in terms of the, I'm not even going to use the word leadership. We'll call it fucking the brass. Um, 
in our military is that it's just, uh, it's, it's disheartening. It's sickening. And, uh, and I just didn't like what I saw. You know, I saw that, you know, the higher guys got up, uh, you know, the more the decisions they made were more about promotion and what it would do to their career or not than it did having to do with it, you know, just being the right thing to do and, and taking care of the boys. And this is the, the right thing to do for the sake of it being the right thing to do. And so, uh, all those three, three things combined, uh, it actually made it fairly easy to, to pull chalks and get out of the military. Um, you know, I, I try to always live my life, not, not looking at things like, you know, well, if I don't do this, then I'm going to regret that or, or whatever. It's just, you know, I, I make the, the best decision I, I can with the information I have at the time and, and try not to look back. And, uh, and I haven't, I mean, I loved the time that I was in the military. Um, I miss the guys. Uh, I miss, you know, some of the job that we did, but, uh, but I don't regret getting out. I mean, I wouldn't be where I'm at today had I stayed in. Uh, and, and I love where I'm at right now. So, um, you know, ultimately I think it was the right call. Well, I appreciate you going into that detail and we'll certainly get into what you've done after the military here in just a second. But I guess a great place to start as well is because, you know, a lot of people want to talk to seals about what was it like being cold, wet and Sandy? It was buzz, was buds hard. Was it, you know, was it difficult carrying a boat on your head? I'm not really interested in that because I think we all know the answer, but I know that there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be in a special operations capacity and specifically as a Navy SEAL. So from your perspective, in terms of the generalized public, what what are some of the biggest misconceptions about being a Navy SEAL? The thing that stands out to me kind of immediately when being asked that is, uh, is the assumption that we're all a certain type of person. Uh, and by that, I mean primarily physically uh, or or even just you know personality-wise, how, how guys come across. A lot of times... When people meet seals, they're like, you know, I, I wouldn't wouldn't have thought that, you know, that that's what most seals are like. You know, most seals are, you know, five nine to six one, you know, one seventy five to, to two ten. You know, not small guys, but not you know, fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger or, or Rambo or anything either. Um, there are guys that are you know big physical Adonises like that, but but most of of us aren't. You know, most of us just look like. Well, the guy looks like he was probably an athlete in high school and then still works out and, and is in decent shape, um, you know, but, but that's it. You know, as guys get older, I think there's more of a contrast because most 25-year-olds, if they're not total shitbirds, are in decent shape, just, you know, uh, because it's hard not to be almost unless you're just a total lazy prick. But, um, you know, as I'm getting, you know, into my mid-40s and, and stuff, then I think you see a kind of a bigger separation of, of, uh, you know, what most guys in their mid forties look like versus guys that continue to, uh, to take care of themselves and work on that kind of stuff. But, uh, but that, that's, I, I think the biggest thing is that most people assume that, that everybody looks like, you know, Rambo or like a UFC fighter, or, you know, that, that we're good at absolutely everything or that, you know, our opinion that we know everything about everything. I mean, I see guys on the news often, uh, you know, being interviewed about certain things. I'm like, why the fuck is that guy on here? Like, you know, it's like, Oh, he was a ranger. Or he was a seal or he was a Delta guy or, you know, whatever. And it's like, so I, I think the biggest misconception is, uh, by default because of kind of the almost legendary of mythic proportion reputations that special operations guys have because of pop culture and, and the, the news media and movies and, and things like that is that people think that, that we're all these, you know, Jedi warrior ninjas that, uh, you know, possess, you know, every capability at the highest level. And that's just not the case. I mean, I, I think the one common denominator is just a, it's a common man with an uncommon will to succeed or just 
flat out stubbornness. Um, you know, is that most guys are, are just too proud and stubborn to fucking quit. And, uh, you know, and, and that's what gets most guys through training. Uh, but another misconception that I, I do come across is that everybody kind of in the same vein is that all of us are, are, you know, impeccable shots and snipers and free fall wizards and dive experts. And, you know, and while yes, you, you know, there's a kind of a jack of all trades, master of none or master of maybe one or two things. Most people think that, you know, again, it's like, oh, you're a seal, you were a sniper, you're a free fall God, you're a, uh, you know, a boat specialist, you know, whatever. And like, well, yes, you know enough to operate in, in all of these capacities and you have to be competent in them. Uh, there's just not enough time in the day to, to be, you know, masters of, of every single one of the aspects of the capabilities that special operations guys bring to the table. Um, the last thing that kind of comes to mind is that I think, a lot of times people think that, that we're crazy or that we, uh, you know, love violence or uh, that we signed up because we, you know, the, the prospect of taking somebody's life is, is pleasurable or, or whatever. And, and that's also far from the truth. I mean, yes, there are some guys, I think, that are maybe a little more inclined or, or apt to be that way than others. But most guys, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a cliche or even cheesy overused adage. But uh, but I, I do think that it applies uh, really to all the military, but especially special operations. It's not that you hate what's in front of you. It's that you love what's behind you. And, and, and I think most guys are just very passionate about being protectors and, and kind of that sheepdog mentality and, and, uh, and wanting to do things for the greater good of our society, by and large. Right. I'm glad you talked a lot about, you know, even when you're talking about training, because every time you talk to anybody, especially you, you're right up close during buds and selection and those different things is those Adonises, you know, the college water polo players and those, those guys, whenever they're ringing the bell on the first day of hell week, or if they never even got the hell week, you know, it's all the other guys that are just kind of the normal looking guys, the normal athletes that are just like, Oh my gosh, Adonis just quit. But Ah, that's him. I'm not going to be one of those people that quits. And so it's just a different mentality. It's not necessarily about the body. Uh, and, and, you know, it's about the engine inside, I guess, is the best way to look at it. But one thing that I found interesting about your story, Mike, and I got this from your books and from talking to you a little bit, is that pretty early on in your career as a SEAL, you became interested in canine working dogs. Okay. But there's a very specific story. It's a quick one, but it's a very specific story as to how you became interested. Would you mind sharing that with us? Sure. So uh, on a deployment to Iraq, we were up in the, the northern part uh, in Saddam's hometown of Tikrit. Uh, and we were there with uh, with tens of thousands of Marines. Uh, and so uh, just at that time, you know, I, I had kind of looking back on growing up with dogs and, and you know, being involved in bird dogs and hog dogs and, uh, you know, just being kind of a, a student of, of many different breeds and different working capacities. Uh, and, and taking it fairly serious, but I'd never gotten into kind of the military working dog or, or police service dog. And so uh, there was a, a group of Marines in the area that we were in that had a, an explosive detection dog. And um, and that was the, the kind of light switch or turning point for me that, that really sparked my interest in these types of dogs is that, you know, we had been in, in the same type of situation that these Marines had been in countless times uh, and never had a dog with us, you know. And so it just kind of clicked that I was thinking, you know, we've been in this position, they had this capability, we don't have it, why the fuck are we not using dogs, you know, and, and uh, from that point on, I just couldn't get enough of it, you know, and that was, um, that was really the, the key moment for me, um, where it just kind of all came together, and I was like, that's what I want to do, um, and, you know, for me, it was, uh, I would say, very fortunate, and I'm, I'm eternally grateful for 
being able to even be in the position to kind of do both, you know, to have spent time as an operator, uh, to get heavy into working dogs and then to be able to, to meld the two together, um, you know, and, and be a, a trainer for, you know, a, a SEAL multi-purpose canine unit, uh, you know, it was just kind of the, the pinnacle of, of everything that I loved. And, and like I said, just, I felt very fortunate to be able to put it all together. But. Well, in your book, Trident Canine Warriors, it was really surprising to me because it's one of those things that you just, if you don't know it's there, you would never even think to look. But there's actually a very, very long history of military working dogs serving right along soldiers. And this is this goes back hundreds and thousands of years, people using these dogs. And, and you detail that very, very well in that book. And I know we can't get into all the detail here, but can you give us a little bit of an overview as to the history of canines being used for military purposes? Yeah, I mean, to, to your point, you know, one of the, and I bring this up at the at the beginning of the book, actually, is that, um, you know, for, for all of the technology that our society possesses as it relates to, I mean, to everything, but specifically warfare, you know, we've got laser-guided munitions and, and really, really high-level, uh, you know, superb technology in terms of night vision and, and uh, you know, forward-looking infrared and thermal and uh, you know, some of the munitions and, and weapon systems platforms that we have are uh, are hard to even wrap your mind around as to how, you know, technologically advanced they are. When you contrast it to, you know, Roman Empire times of, of you know, what we're using versus what they were using. <clears throat> and if you look kind of chronologically at, at what, uh, you know, our, our uh, I'll say our race as human beings have, have used to augment themselves in combat, uh, dogs are the only thing that have been used the entire time and are still used to this day. You know, there, there's nothing else that, that that's the case as a, as a, you know, a weapon system that really augments uh, man, you know. And so if you think about, you know, technology, um, you know, and, and going back to, to say, you know, guard dogs, camp guard dogs in, in gladiator times or messenger dogs or, or medical uh, dogs where they would, you know, move supplies and, and uh, or even communications, uh, you know, and, and fast forward as to, you know, what they were used for back then and what they're used for now. Uh, it, to me, it's just truly remarkable to think uh, that, that, you know, their their capability in combat has has remained over thousands of years to be every bit as, as capable and uh, uh, an asset driven uh, as it was back 2000 years ago, you know, and, and that's saying a lot given you know what what we have at our fingertips and, and what's available to us today and the fact that you know our our nation's most elite special operations soldiers you know the, the best of the best the, the high, highest trained best equipped uh you know have most heavily selected group of individuals that our u.s military has to offer still has a dog out in front of them you know, the, the tip of the spear has a dog in front of, of where they're going to, to help protect them, you know, and, and I can tell you from experience, you know, the, one of the nice things about uh, high level special operations soldiers is that they don't use a single fucking thing for the sake of using it. They use they only use things that work. Uh, it's not like the rest of our society that, you know, has smoke and mirrors and uh, does shit because it checks a box or is, is societally more acceptable than others or whatever. Like that shit doesn't exist in the military at that level. In some parts it does now, unfortunately. Uh, and I think you're starting to see even at our highest level, shit, dumb shit like that bleed over into that. Uh, that's for another discussion. But, um, but the fact is, is that when it comes to equipment, you know, they're not, they're not using anything because they have this special deal with their buddy or, 
uh, or whatever, you know, they, they use what works and that's it. And, and dogs work uh, remarkably well. There was actually a study at the height of the Iraq war when IEDs were the single biggest, um, you know, threat to, to American soldiers and, and they in and of themselves as a tactic were responsible for more U.S. deaths than anything else. And the uh, Department of Defense spent billions of dollars doing this uh, very advanced study on, on all things on, on how to defeat IEDs. And, uh, you know, they tested all different types of equipment and machines and, uh, you know, different protocols to try to defeat them. And at the end of this, you know, multi-billion dollar study, they came to the conclusion that uh, the dog, uh, you know, explosive detection dog, uh, of, of all the capabilities was the single uh, best, just in terms of, of efficacy, let alone, you know, the cheapest of all the options and it's mobile uh, and it provides a, a camaraderie and a uh, kind of a slice of home uh, in terms of morale boost uh, with the troops, as well as uh, can also do apprehension. Uh, you know, so a, a dog that's mobile, that's cheaper, uh, that keeps people in good, good moods and also can go ahead and, and fuck people up and bite them. Uh, you know, the, the dog bang for your buck is, is impossible to beat, you know. So uh, they're just truly, truly remarkable animals. And, and that's why I, I am continuing uh, to be very passionate about them and, and remain in this industry because I, I just really love it. Well, that's the thing that I find is is very important to run into guys like you because I remember whenever I heard the news reports about the Al Baghdadi, you know how he was chased and how they took him out. Well, the thing that people were forgetting about that story was that it was the dogs that went off after him through the tunnel or whatever, and then he goes to the end of the tunnel, and blows himself up because he didn't yeah. want to get tore up by a dog. And it's just like you know we talk about the seals and we talk about Trump and we talk about all those different things, and then you forget about one of the main living tools that was there, and it was one of those animals. Um, and there's so many stories like that. But there was one story in particular from that book, again, Trident Canine Warriors, that I thought was was incredible. And it's obviously had a huge impact on you. So you talk about a particular dog named Reno. And there was a particular set of circumstances in, in one night, I believe it was, where that canine, that working dog saved you and your buddy's lives on multiple occasions. And so I know there's a lot of details to get into. So you feel free to give us as much detail as you want. But would you mind telling us that story as well? Yeah. So the, uh, you know, have to forgive me on, uh, the, the names in every instance uh, in that book, all of the names of the dogs, with the exception of one dog named Cairo, that's not the the infamous Cairo, um, a, a different one. That, that was his actual name. But in every other case, uh, the dogs' names have been changed. And being the fact that it's uh, what eight eight years ago now that the book came out, uh, I, I honestly I don't remember which uh, which story you're you're talking about. I, I do want to clarify one thing uh, as it relates to to my work overseas. Uh, and, and, and with dogs in particular is, is that that didn't take place. So in every case, every story that's in that book is either a dog that I, in, in most cases, it's a dog that I worked with, uh, as a trainer. And then the dog went overseas with their handler, uh, or there, there's a, a compilation of a few stories, uh, just from the special operations community, uh, to, to kind of highlight, uh, some of the things that, that these dogs do. So I don't know if you remember the details of Reno, but uh, or the Reno story, but, uh, you know, again, with, uh, with, with so many different stories in there right. and the names, if, if, if I could remember what, 
what the real dog's name was, I, it, it would pop up for sure. But so uh, maybe I can I can look it up when we talk about it next time. But well, I, no, I appreciate the clarification. So let's go just a different different way then. So give us any story that you know of from either your personal experience or the experience in the teams of yeah. a dog and kind of what they were able to do to protect life. Because earlier you talk about how, you know, the Marines had that dog and how, you know, there was kind of a booby trap door that definitely saved a couple of lives and saved some other guys from getting maimed. Yeah. But what are some other stories any that come to mind that are prominent for you? Sure. There's two in particular that I would like to share. Uh, and, and the reason why they kind of uh, strike a chord with me more than the rest is that these were the first two dogs that uh, that we got in for the Warrior Dog Foundation because they were there at the end of their service and, and were going to be euthanized if somebody didn't take them, uh, you know. And so that that's when I stepped in and, and took them. And, and in both cases, these dogs were with you know a high level uh, tier one anti terrorism unit, and uh, and in both cases they were they were wounded and, and continued to do their job. The first one. Uh, in the book, the dog's name is Arco, <clears throat> um, and Arco was uh, a very special dog in terms of his temperament. Um, now, Arco, uh, again, that's not his real name, but uh, even when I had him uh, at you know at 11, 12, 13 years old, because we had him for several years, um, you know, the, on the, the day that he died, actually, uh, he, he tried to bite me in the face. Um, yeah, because I was just trying to, to cover him up with a warm a warm towel because he was he was shivering really bad and and had lost a bunch of weight and was dehydrated and was just you know at that stage in his life where he couldn't keep food or water down and and so that that's when it was time but uh, but even right up until the end you know he, he was just a, an ornery piss and vinegar filled uh, you know kind of kind of a motherfucker of a dog but uh, when he was on a deployment to Afghanistan. Um, I won't get too specific into the tactics uh, in terms of, of how exactly, but um, but the gist of it is is that a unit is going through uh, through a target and uh, the the dog is ahead of them in, in this case, not in every case, but in this case, uh, he's being sent into rooms ahead of the guys. And so in this particular case, he goes into a room and there was a, a sandbagged uh, machine gun nest in the corner with a, a Russian PKM, which is the, kind of their version of our uh, M60, you know, 762 by 51. In this case, it's a 762 by 54. So there's, there's even more ass to it. Uh, it's just a, it's a nasty machine gun at any rate. Uh, you know, so one of their tactics at that time was to, was to sandbag in and have, you know, a position where they're basically protected knowing that, that our guys are going to come in. Uh, and if, you know, if they're largely protected by a sandbag area and just have a, a small, machine gun port that they're just sawing dudes, you know, left and right to come in. That, that's a hard, hard target to deal with. And, and that tactic uh, in most cases is going to result in, you know, a, probably a few of our guys getting shot uh, and, and most likely killed with those rounds. So, um, excuse me, the, uh, <clears throat> so in this case, you know, this dog, uh, Arco, we'll call him, goes in, and, uh, and manages to, to get into that corner and, and get the guy in the arm uh, before he has a chance to, to fire any rounds. It's one of the capabilities of them that, uh, that's exceptionally remarkable, in my opinion, is just how fast and quiet they are. They're, they're super efficient. Uh, you know, they're, they're so much faster and quieter than we are that they can take a lot of guys, uh, catch them off guard and take them by storm and, and do things like that. But uh, so he comes in and grabs the guy right in the pocket, the left bicep, and uh, and so this guy now can't can't get to his his big belt fed machine gun, but he's got an AK slung uh, as a secondary. 
And uh, so he grabs this AK and pulls it out. And uh, while the dog is biting him, puts it right up to his chest, point blank, and, and fires a round off. And shoots him right in the chest, goes out through the back of his shoulder, missed his heart, thank God. Um, but the dog didn't didn't let go of him. He, he continued to, to bite him and, and took him down and, and neutralized him further, uh, you know, to where he couldn't uh, continue to shoot. Uh, that gave the, the the rest of the team, they come in, they hear the struggle and then what have you, they hear the gunshot. They come in, they neutralize the target. Uh, they get uh, they get our uh, off and stabilized and, and medevac him out and, and basically treated him just like a human being that was wounded and uh, you know I mean he, he un, undoubtedly saved uh, you know several guys that day and so uh, that that's one story another story this is uh, one from uh, a good good friend of mine named Benny who I had on my podcast uh, well, I'll tell you the name of his dog because he's he's publicly announced it the, the, the dog's real name is Digo. Uh, in the book, I, I call him Carlos. But um, in this case, they were getting ready to go into a uh, in, into a, a house target, and uh, as they were going in, uh, it was filled with explosives, and uh, and it was remote detonated, uh, you know, from a ways away. And so, as they're starting to go into this building, the entire thing just explodes. Uh, the, it was a kind of a concrete uh, foyer that. Uh, that collapsed on him and, and broke the dogs, broke the handler and the dog's several bones. Uh, in, in the dog's case, it broke his pelvis, collapsed his lungs, collapsed his sinus, uh, sinus cavities. Uh, just you know, really, really, I think it ruptured his spleen and, and maybe one other internal organ. Just completely fucked him up, as well as the handler. The handler had broken pelvis, broken legs, uh, you know, broke a bunch of things and was knocked unconscious and, and what have you. And so. Um, as the team is coming up to try to get, get them out of there, the dog comes to uh, and is basically protecting his unconscious handler from everybody else trying to help him out at first. I mean, luckily they, uh, you know, they all know the dog well enough and, and, you know, got him under control without getting injured and whatever, but it just really speaks to the, uh, speaks volumes to the, the level of, of loyalty and dedication that those dogs have to, to their handler, to their, their training, um, you know, and, and, just what's mostly remarkable about that to me is that that dog, um, you know, made a full recovery from that, but both of them actually, and then ended up deploying again, uh, you know, going back overseas and continuing to do the work. And so, uh, you know, in both instances, just a real testament to uh, just how remarkable of, of, of an animal that these, these dogs really are and, and what they bring to the table is, is really uh, impossible to, um, to kind of really encapsulate how, how big of an impact that they make. Yeah, those are great stories. And I feel like there's a quote towards the end of that book that I feel like encapsulates really your feelings towards what they've done here. So I'll read the quote here. I've always admired how little dogs ask in return for all they do for us. In that way, they are very much like the servicemen and women in all branches of our military. These dogs are not only our best friends, they embody the best about us, the courage, loyalty, and heart of true warriors. And so I feel like that sentiment kind of led you directly. I, I don't really know the origin story to the Warrior Dog Foundation, which you mentioned briefly earlier. So can you give us a little bit of an idea as to kind of what the Warrior Dog Foundation is and kind of what was the the inspiration behind setting up something like that? Sure. So uh, the inspiration very simply was out of necessity is that, you know, the unit that sent the first two dogs and, and most of the units uh, subsequently are uh, are really in a position that's that's a tough spot to be in and that you know budgets are, are not uh, you know just overflowing with with resources the way that they were kind of at the height of the, the Iraq war um, 
And so you've got tough decisions to make. And this is police departments. It's, you know, customs, border patrol, it's, it's military, you name it, is that, you know, there's a lot of things that, that these units need. Uh, the body armor, vehicles, new weapon systems, night vision, uh, you know, other platform re- resources, et cetera. Um, you know, and, and dogs are, are a line item uh, of, of equipment when it comes to budgeting, you know, even though they're, they're animals uh, and then living, breathing creatures, they still, you know, they are a line item that, that is a, a resource that takes a lot of money to maintain. Um, and so when these units get in a position where they've got a dog that uh, needs to be retired, can't continue to work, um, you know, but is, is a lot of dogs still and, and a handful and tough to deal with, uh, then they're faced with that decision of, you know, do we take away, you know, in, and I would say in law enforcement, it's, it's even more common, but, you know, so a police department may be faced with a decision of, well, we can spend money to take care of this dog, you know, that, that can't do anything for us anymore in terms of work, or we can get body armor for our guys. You know, it's like, well, shit, that's an impossible decision to make, you know, but they, but they have to do it. And, and that's, I mean, shit, that's life, right? Uh, you know, do you pay your power, power bill or your water bill, you know, or your mortgage, you know I mean? They're like people are, are in those situations sometimes and, and departments and, and operational units within department of defense, uh, you know, find themselves in, in that position frequently. And so they, they have to make these tough decisions. So I don't fault them for saying, Hey, body armor is more important than taking care of these dogs. It sucks. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be that way. And I mean, if we have money to spend on uh, social programs that, that I think are, are pretty laughable at best in terms of their, their efficacy and, and them being warranted, uh, which again, that's a, that's a whole other podcast that I'm sure we'll cover in the next one. But uh, it shouldn't be that way. But the reality is, is that it is. And so that's where, where we were born out of is that, um, you know, I, I didn't think that it was okay for these dogs to be euthanized after everything that they had done for us collectively as a nation. And I was willing to just say, you know what, I'll, I'll fucking take them. Uh, so I didn't have the foundation. It wasn't something that I thought up of, Hey, here's a need. I have this resource. Let me put these pieces together. Uh, it was born out of necessity. It was, if nobody takes these dogs, we're going to put them down. I was like, well, fuck that. I'll take them. Uh, and I'll figure it out, you know? And so, that opened the floodgates and then all of a sudden, you know, all these different units and departments, you know, here word of mouth, it's a pretty small industry that, that we took these dogs. And then, so, you know, now we've taken over 250 dogs in the last uh, 11 years. And, and our main uh, kind of mission statement is to first and foremost act as a, as an indefinite sanctuary for these dogs, you know, at a minimum, uh, you know, I, I want to keep them from being euthanized and, and give them somewhere to live out the rest of their lives in, in as much dignity and grace and, and the ability to be a dog as we can provide for them. Uh, secondarily, uh, in that situation, if we can provide a, a, a rehab uh, environment uh, with which, you know, kind of hinges on their ability to, to progress to a point where they can either be rehomed to a civilian family and then just kind of live like a, a modified house dog uh, or in some cases, if the dog is young enough or still has kind of enough operational shelf life that we kind of get their mind right and, and rehab them to a point where we can uh, then repurpose them to another department or unit, which we've done with a number of dogs as well. So um, it's kind of a, a three-pronged approach. You know, step one is is keep them from being euthanized. Two is rehab them and hopefully rehome them or uh, get them to 
uh, repurpose them to a different unit or at a bare minimum as you just give them, uh, you know, a, a place to be for the rest of their life and, and not have to be euthanized for, uh, uh, for lack of, of resources. So um, I'm a little disappointed still in, in our government in terms of a lack of federal funding for programs such as, as ours. There are, uh, you know, a few other nonprofits that, that work similarly. We're all a little different. Uh, but we all work kind of synergistically together and, and, uh, and our ultimate goal is, is essentially the same. And, uh, and none of us run off of federal funding or grants or anything like that. You know, everything, this is, while it's disappointing in the U S government side, it's not a shocker. Um, what, what's very, um, endearing and, and just very, uh, you know, positive and motivating in terms of, of how it reflects on our society is that our ability to operate and take care of the 30 plus dogs that, w- that we take care of now and have for years now uh, hinges on, you know, the public's uh, overwhelming generosity and support to, to help us accomplish our mission. And, and they do that year after year after year. I mean, every fucking dime that, that is uh, generated to, to take care of these dogs is generated from the public. And, uh, and I, I can't thank, uh, you know, all of the people who donate, uh, enough for, for giving us the, the ability to do that. <clears throat> well, Mike, you know, our federal dollars need to go to important things like making sure the soldiers can get sex changes and making yeah. sure that we can get pregnant pilots, the appropriate suits and things like that. So I yeah. wish you'd stop being so bigoted. Okay. We got yeah. a plenty of time for your bigotry later. Okay. But yeah. one thing that I really like getting into and guys, we'll have links to the warrior dog foundation, and everything like that. So if that sounds like something that you want to give your daughter, uh, your dollars to support, you can absolutely do that. So we'll make sure that that's in the show notes. But after you did decide to leave the Navy, you started your own company and you, you basically have started several companies, but you started Tricos International. Uh, you, you started a dog training company. Uh, you have a, a dog food and dog treat yeah. company and that type of thing. So I guess I'm always interested in entrepreneurs and kind of why they went into business for themselves because you could have just went in the corporate route. You could have went yeah. back to school and got a master's and tried to do the whole banking thing or the whole this thing or that thing. You could have ran for office. You could have done a lot of different things, but you decide to go into business for yourself. But why specifically go into business, but then stay in the canine side of things. So the, the the first question, you know, why why be an entrepreneur and why start your own business as opposed to all of the other options? For me, it comes down to to one very simple thing: is that I don't like being fucking told to do anything by anybody. I hate it, uh, you know. And so for me, um, you know, I, I got more than than my fair share of of what I wanted to, to deal with as it relates to that in the military of being told what to wear and when and how to wear it, when to wear it, where to be, when to be, you know, I just, that shit gets old, you know? And so, uh, I did springboard out into, uh, corporate America for a few months, uh, as I was getting the dog company set up, I never had the intention of staying in it. Um, you know, but it, it, it provided an ability to separate from the military and, have you know enough revenue to uh, to live off of until I could could get the uh, the side hustle into the main hustle, if you will, and uh, and that that was more than enough. I mean, again, I I, I knew that I didn't want to do that. That just continued to reinforce it, um, you know. But for me, I, I uh, you know whether you want to call it selfish, uh, whether you want to call it driven, uh, whether you want to call it. You know, I I know very specifically, and I'm very particular about how I want things or, or whatever whatever label or, or coined phrase you want to attach to, to that mentality that I have. And I think most entrepreneurs have is that it's very similar is that, you know, I, I can walk into a, a subway 
you know, and I can't help but think that person shouldn't be here. That system is fucked up. They don't know what they're doing. This should be better. Why is this happening? Like I can't go into any fucking store or business or even somebody's house without being ju a judgmental prick about stuff like that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just hardwired that way. And so like the prospect of working for somebody else um, is impossible. Like there, there's no way I could work for somebody else at this point. I, it just wouldn't work. Um, you know, and, and so for me, that's a lot of that. It's just my personality is that I, I want to be the person in charge of what I'm doing. Uh, I don't think that's, you know, too much to ask. I don't think it's abnormal either. I think most people just aren't willing to do what it takes to be in that position. You know, I think most people want that or they say they want that uh, until it comes time to, to kind of pay the man and, and live that way. And it takes a while. You know, some people, yes, are lucky. You know, they st start out as an entrepreneur and within, you know, a year or two, they're, they're in the black and doing well and whatever. But those are, are exceptions. Most of us, myself absolutely included, and, and with me probably even longer than most, um, it, I mean, it was years and years of, of struggling, frankly. Um, you know, whether it's a, a pride issue, uh, you know, an ego problem, uh, or just the way that I'm hardwired, uh, is that I just, I just wasn't going to give up, you know, my, my mentality that, that helped get me into the SEAL teams and, and be successful for over a decade in them, um, you know, was absolutely something that, <clears throat> that I transferred over and it's just always been part of who I am. Um, you know, and not, not letting myself, uh, give in or quit or give up. And, and, uh, you know, that's a, uh, a very, very key contrast with that. And so, uh, you know, the, the why I do it is, is just, you know, again, what you can call me a selfish asshole, or whatever. It's just, I know what I want. I know how I want to live. Uh, I know I, how I want things to be. And the only way to make that happen is to do it yourself and, and to be an entrepreneur and run your own businesses. So, uh, that's the why now in terms of why, uh, I've stayed in the canine industry is because I love it. Now I will say, Here's where, you know, lessons learned as a business individual um, have greatly influenced a lot of the decisions I've made and kind of the, the angles that I've taken, the pivots that, that I've partaken in uh, within the canine industry. You know, when I first started out, it was all government, military, police, you know, all the sexy working dog stuff, because that's what I liked doing. Uh, and I did that for a number of years and then started to kind of meddle in more of the civilian sector. Uh, the biggest reason why I started doing that was just in, in the requests, you know, of doing book signings or speaking events or fundraisers or, or you know, whatever, um, is that, I, you know, I would interact with, with people and they would say, you know, hey, I've got this dog, you know, have you thought about writing a book, you know, blah, like just the, the books, getting into the civilian sector, whether it's protection dogs, whether it's products, uh, online training, you name it, even the podcast, uh, have all been born out of people, just enough people have asked Hey, have you thought about doing this? Or would you consider doing that for me to say, okay, well, fuck, if there's that many people asking me if, if I would do this, there's obviously some demand there. So I'm going to give it a shot. And some of the things have worked and some of them haven't, uh, just like with anything, you know, I mean, you, uh, you know, business is a lot like baseball uh, in a lot of ways uh, in that, you know, you, you go up to bat and sometimes, uh, you know, you foul out. Sometimes you strike out. Sometimes you get a, a base hit. Sometimes you knock it out of the fucking park. Um, the key is, is that you just, you keep going to bat. You keep practicing. You keep trying. Uh, don't always swing for the fence either. Uh, because you're, you're probably going to strike out more often than not. Don't be afraid of just getting good base hits here and there. And, and, 
um, you know, that's something that I've, I've kind of learned. And, and in that, um, you know, is where that kind of transition into the more product-based business, more so than the service-based business, has just been a lesson learned in paying attention to what brings money in versus what doesn't, you know. And, and the reality of it is, as much as I love working dogs and, and, uh, and training uh, in that area, it's a tough part of the business to be in to make any kind of decent living. Um, you know, and there's, I have no doubt, you know, critics that would say, well, so it's just about the money then. And to me, no, it's not. Uh, but I also, as I get older, um, you know, my, my physical ability to train at that level, just like we were talking about before we got on, you know, jujitsu is that the way I train now, whether it's working out jujitsu, working dogs, whatever is, is noticeably different than it was when I was 30. Um, you know, and, and out of necessity, it's that way, you know, and it's only going to get more and more that way. You know, I don't want to wake up at 60 years old and be scrubbing dog shit off of kennel walls and, and, you know, driving 17 hours through the night to, to go do a seminar with the police department. And, you know, it's just, that stuff is, is, is fun and I love doing it, but I, I, I can't and don't want to do that my entire life. Um, you know, and the reality of it is, is that the working dog industry is, is a microcosm of the canine world, uh, when you compare it to, to civilian dogs, pet dogs, et cetera, uh, you know, there's tens of thousands of, of working dogs in the country. There's 90 million pet dogs. Uh, you know, so just as, as I get more and more uh, kind of fine tuned as a businessman, I, I realize, okay, you know, here, here are the, here's the, the pot of different things that I'm interested in and that I want to do. Okay. Now within that pot, Let's prioritize which one of them from a, a cost benefit analysis standpoint is going to give me the most bang for my buck. Like still like doing these things, you know, is teaching a labradoodle not to jump up on grandma. Is that as sexy as you know, doing a, a bite work scenario in a, uh, in a warehouse at two in the morning in fucking downtown Detroit? No, it's not. Um, but it, it's still uh, working with dogs, which I love. Uh, training is training. You know, getting from A to B is largely the same process, irrespective of, of what the discipline within the canine industry is. Um, you know, and it's and it's always fascinating. Um, and there's absolutely something to be said for, uh, you know, getting messages or, or calls or emails about, uh, you know, helping people with with even their pet dogs. Is that you know that's not any less important. Uh, you know, for, for somebody who's struggling with their dog to where they're, they're considering euthanizing their dog because it's, you know, they're having issues with their kids with them or the neighbor's dog or, or what have you. Uh, and being able to help people through that and, and getting, you know, kind of these affirmation uh, messages of, of people who are very thankful for, uh, for helping them uh, save their dog or keep from having to give it away or, or, you know, putting their kids in a dangerous spot or, or whatever. Uh, to me, that's very fucking rewarding. Uh, you know, it's not any less rewarding, you know, than helping uh, police canines, uh, you know, fix certain issues, you know, doing seminars and stuff like that. And, and I still do some of that stuff. That's just not my primary gig anymore because, you know, again, bang for your buck and, and juice being worth a squeeze uh, as budgets, especially now with police departments and military, uh, you know, they're not getting any bigger uh, budget wise. You know, it's, it's the, the transverse. I mean, people are trying to defund them and, and whatever. So, uh, you know, I help as, as best I can and, and I still, you know, have my foot in some of those disciplines, but that's not my primary gig because, uh, you know, from a business standpoint, there's just things that, uh, that are a little, uh, easier to, to manage. Well, I appreciate that sentiment because there's a lot of people that, you know, 
from an entrepreneurship standpoint, they'll ask you your advice and they're shocked when you don't give them, here's the five steps to success. And it's a direct line. And it's like, you know, I had this guy reach out and he was like, Hey, I've been doing this podcast for a year and it's just not really getting off the ground. And I was like, Whoa, a whole year, huh? You've been working at this a whole year and it's not wildly successful. You don't have a hundred million downloads per episode. And so for a lot of people, they just need that message of stick that you're going to get punched in the face. You just need to be able to continue moving forward. But one thing you mentioned, Mike, is you mentioned being able to help people that are just everyday dog owners. So like I'm an everyday dog owner, you have working dogs and everyday dogs. And you actually wrote a book in 2015 called Team Dog, How to Train Your Dog the Navy SEAL Way. And we can't get into all the specifics because we don't really have enough time. But the one thing I am curious about about is because you have all this time and experience training these super specialized dogs that are particular breeds, you know, the Malinois or Shepherds or something like that. And then you've got the Labradoodles and the giant Schnauzers and the Maltesers and the different things like that. The, the question I guess I have for you is for a normal everyday dog owning civilian, what are the most common mistakes that people make when they're training their dog to do anything, pee outside or not jump up on grandma? Yeah. So there's two, two main components. Uh, number one is that they, they don't view the world the way that their dog views the world. They're, they're thinking of training from a human standpoint, right? And, and one of the most stark contrasts and key concepts that, that you have to, to realize to implement into your training and, and always uh, keep in mind as you're even interacting with your dog on the day to day is that they don't think in a language, right? And, and I want anybody listening, I want you to really think about that for a second is that you dream in a language, you know, you think in a language, as I ask you that question, you have an internal monologue that you're trying to rationalize what that's like in your head, right? You, you think to yourself, you know, what am I going to eat today? Or, Oh, if I'm working out this day, like hmm. now, now think about, going through life where you don't have that capability, right? Where you, you don't have a, an internal monologue via voice that, that rationalizes all the different stimuli that you come in contact with. Instead, you have basically a, a mental calculator. You have A plus B equals C for fucking everything, right? So everything to a dog is a simple association. That's it, right? And, and so it, it highlights why it is so important to view the world that way because the, the and the second point is is that you have to to put yourself in their shoes now, part of it is the mental thing we just talked about the second part is body language if you're at a, a target parking lot right and you're sitting in your car uh somebody's walking by you've never met them you can't hear them if they are talking uh you've no idea what what their day is like uh, or, or where they're from or, you know, any of that stuff, but you can, you can make some assumptions based on how they're carrying themselves. If, if that person is having the worst day of their life, you can tell, right. That person, you know, is, is super, super happy. You can also tell, you know, if they're neutral, not really giving a fuck, you can tell by not hearing them, smelling them, talking to them, knowing them, having any idea who they are or where they're from, you can get a, a really good idea of what kind of day they're having just by how they're carrying themselves. Now, if you think about all of the information that you and I have transferred back and forth in the last better part of an hour, it's substantial. How, how big of a role has body language played in, in what you and I have been talking about? None. I mean, I talk like a 90-year-old Italian grandmother. With <laughs> hey. uh, you know, but, uh, 
but um, but it, it, it has done almost nothing in terms of me communicating. And for those of you listening on audio, obviously it's done zero, right? So where, where I'm tying this all together is that if, if you and I are that verbal in how we communicate, but it's still that easy, even though we're that verbal in how we communicate, it's still that easy to tell when somebody's having the shittiest day of their life. Now imagine a dog who doesn't think in a language and doesn't communicate in a language just how fucking important body language is. It is everything. Mm. And I don't mean it's most of everything. I mean it is fucking everything for a dog. How you interact with them is everything with it. So where people screw up is they, they don't take that and the fact that the dog thinks in a A plus B equals C mentality. If you, if you just train knowing that those two concepts are, are benchmark principles – and how you need to interact with and train your dog, you're already a thousand steps ahead of everybody else. Now, once you understand that, now it's just being consistent. And that's no different than anything else in life, whether it's jujitsu, business, shooting, whatever, uh, is that you've got to put the time in and be consistent. It's especially so with a dog when those two principles are what they are, is that now, like, I can't explain to the dog, here's my expectation of you. You know, you can say, hey, here's my expectation of this interview. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to talk about. Okay, now I know what you expect of me. It's easy for me to meet that expectation. Okay, you can, you can tell a dog, hey, I need you to sit. I, I need you to not bark at that person when I tell you to get in the car. I need you to do it when I open the door. I need you to stay without me saying anything. You can say that to a dog. He's going to tell you to fuck off by not doing any of those things. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and so how do you get them to do that? Well, you keep those two benchmark principles in mind and then you train keeping that in mind is that if everything is a simple association and words don't really mean shit, I'm not going to say anything and I'm going to shape behavior with the things that I know that he wants. So instead of filling up a, a bowl of food and setting it down and you get this free meal for doing nothing, is that now I've got this bowl of food in a pouch on my hip and I've got a clicker, which is a bridge between what you're doing and the food. And so now when he, he looks at me, click and I feed him. I don't, I don't say shit. You know, he looks at his dog bed. I click and I feed him. He comes over towards me. I click and I feed him. And, and so very quickly, like in two or three sessions, you can get a dog to go, go away from, from what you have, which is what he wants. And, and he'll learn and understand it's a very important concept for them to know is that I have to go away from what I want to get it. And so, you know, teaching him to go onto a dog bed without, again, without saying anything is just shaping that behavior with food very quickly, you know, within a matter of generally a few weeks, you can, you can take a dog that doesn't know anything about anything and just through shaping their behavior through positive reinforcement, teach them all different types of things. Um, and once they learn how to learn that way, it, it just becomes faster and faster and, and you can teach them more and quicker. Uh, and, and it, uh, and it's, it's almost seems like magic, but it's not, again, it's just keeping those two basic principles in mind and then being consistent with, with using those to your advantage in your, in your training sessions. And, um, you know, my book team dog, uh, kind of encapsulates all of that. And then the online training is basically, uh, which is the team dog pet, uh, video subscription, that is, is basically video representations of all of these concepts that I talk about in the book and, and what I just talked about. It's me showing how I do that via video, uh, you know, for the online training. But uh, that's kind of a, a long tail on that kite. But, you know, what, one of the problems, I think, too, back to your initial question is, is most people think that it's just this quick, oh, just do this and that'll happen. Like, hey, my dog, you know, jumps up on people. How do I fix that? It's like I start talking about all this other stuff and, and they get their typical 
you know, right now mentality of, of you know, instant gratification. I, I don't give a shit about any of that stuff, the food and whatever. I just, just, just show me how to, how to keep them from jumping up. And, you know, and, and it's kind of like, do you play the guitar? No, no, but I, I know a lot of guys that do. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's kind of like you saying, Hey, I want to learn Eddie Van Halen's eruption solo. Okay. Well, I've got to teach it. No, I, yeah. I don't want to know the scales and all the other bullshit. Just teach me the solo. It's like, you can't learn the solo until you get this other stuff. You got to lay the foundation first. Uh, you know, and so most people just assume that it's like, Oh, let me buy this dog training book. And they think that team dog is going to be this step-by-step manual. And, and it really isn't. I mean, there's some of that in there. But it's principles because, you know, all dogs are different. All people are different. The dynamic of whatever situation you are, you are in is different. But the principles are all the exact same. You know, jujitsu and, and shooting are very similar that way. You know, body styles are different. You know, flexibility levels are different. Strength capabilities are different. You know, age and virility is different, you know. And, and so this these specific techniques to counter this may work better for this person than that person. But there are principles you know, in terms of defense and escape and control and position, you know, that, that are constant, irrespective of, of what any of those factors are. And so dog training is very similar that way. Um, you know, the key is, is those two principles be consistent and find out what motivates the dog so that you can use that to your advantage to shape all of these behaviors. But, uh, you know, if you're looking for just a quick, a quick fix, it's no different than like, Hey, I can't shoot versus worth a shit, but I want you to just teach me this fucking thing real quick. And, and, you know, it just doesn't work that way. But. Well, I, th- I think the big key from what you said is consistency, because I remember whenever I was teaching my uh, giant schnauzer because, or not, yeah, we had this dog that we knew was going to become a big dog at some point. We didn't want a big dog that was going to be unruly and unable to be controlled. And so we did these, these classes and I was astonished that people would pay money for these classes to come every week for six weeks and not do any training with the dog the other six days of the week. And they would show up the dogs doing the same things wrong that it did last week. And it's just like, just be consistent. Like that's one of the easiest things to do in terms of a plus B equals C, because it's like, that's your straight line. If you do this every day, the dog will improve, you will improve. And so the consistency is, is very, very key there. Now here's my last question that I did want to get into before we get into the last segment, because I know we're running short on time and this is kind of giving short shrift to something, but obviously a lot of people know you because of the mic drop, because of the mic drop podcast. And you talked a little bit earlier about kind of, you know, the reason why you got the podcast is because people basically were asking for it. But my question for you is, is because a lot of people, listen to this show that also listen to your show. So they're familiar with it. What is kind of the long-term goal for you with your podcast? I know we're giving short shrift to it. I know a lot of guys are fans of it, but what is the long-term goal there? Because it's not the only thing that you do. It's kind of an ancillary thing that you do that kind of feeds the other stuff that you do, but what do you want to do with it long-term? So overwhelmingly the primary principled goal with, with Mike drop is actually very simple uh, and frankly, very singular. Uh, and that is is to provide a platform for uh, patriots in this country, and, and patriot doesn't mean particularly or specifically military service. You know, there's a lot of different ways to be to be a patriot. Um, but people who, if if I think about from a, a thirty thousand foot view of what our society ingests as it relates to role models, as it relates to historical accounts of of, of our nation's history is that I want to, to provide an outlet for people whose story is uh, worthwhile, deserves being told, and, and frankly needs to be heard by our subsequent generations. Uh, and that's really it, is that I, I want uh, to, to provide a contrast to all of the, the garbage and bullshit, uh, you know, whether it's reality TV or um, 
just the news media, you know, regurgitating a, a bunch of crap that, that isn't even relevant. Um, you know, and, and, and that's really the, the gist of it is, is that, you know, to me, there are, there are too many amazing people out there that never get to tell their stories uh, and never get to influence and impact the, the follow on generations that we have in a, in a good way to, to maintain a, a sense of what our country uh, is and should and, and hopefully continues to still be about. Um, and, and that's it. Uh, you know, I, I just want to be be able to give those people a voice, um, you know, and, and share share their stories with as many people as possible. Absolutely. We'll make sure you guys have a link to that as well. But we have one last section here. If you've got a little bit more time at the end of our episodes, we do something called, what would you say to someone that said, so this is lightning round. Okay. So I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said, and then I'm going to fill in the blank and it could be about a little topic. It could be about something about you specifically, but you got 30 seconds maximum to give us your answer. Okay. So there, you can't blow VA. You can't talk about a lot of different things. It's just meat and potatoes. So you up for it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. We'll see how you do. First one here. What would you say to someone that said, I want to serve my country. I want to become a Navy SEAL. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, before you decide to do that, uh, think about what, what is going to have the biggest impact, you know, ask yourself why now, if all of the, uh, the answers lead to, yeah, that makes sense. Then by all means do it. Uh, if it leads to, you'd be better off as a civil engineer because of where your talents are, then, then better off to, to do that. I think everybody, but you know, after high school and, and either between college or after college, before they enter the the real world, should serve some higher purpose than themselves. Boys and Girls Club, uh, you know, Peace Corps, military, fucking whatever. All right, sounds good. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, "I regret never serving in the U.S. military"? Uh, I would say, don't don't have regrets. Um, you know, you're at where you're at because of the choices that you made, and, and they're not wrong. Uh, you know shy of say ed bundy or you know some serial killer uh you know to me like one of the unique and amazing things about life is that is that we're all different and we all serve different purposes um you know and that purpose isn't of any higher value than being a pastor or a community leader or uh you know a mentor for for young poor kids or i mean fucking whatever it is is that you know just uh, don't have regrets uh and and moving forward if there's things that you want to do, go fucking do them. All right. Next lightning round question here. What would you say to someone that said there are some dogs that are just too dangerous or aggressive and cannot be helped? Uh, I would say I absolutely fucking agree with you. Uh, I, I would also say in that the, the percentage of dogs that actually fit that category versus the ones who are labeled as that is a huge disparity. And that's where I think people get kind of the misnomer is that every dog is saveable. It's very much like people. Right. Is that most people are savable. It's just you got to put the time in and invest into them and, and they have to do the work also. But there are some people that are just plum fucking crazy. Uh, and with dogs, it's that way, too. There's just not very many of them. You know, most that are labeled as crazy and, and dangerous and unrehabable. Uh, that's not the case. It's just not being able to communicate with them properly. All right. What would you say to someone that said, I don't have time to train my Malinois or shepherd properly. I just want a cool looking dog. Yeah. Well, I would say uh, two things. Is one is that you have as much time as everybody else to do whatever it is that you want. If you're not choosing to carve out the time to train your dog, that's your fault. Uh, and and with that, if you're not choosing to take the time to train that dog, or frankly any dog, irrespective of breed, then you just frankly should not have one. All right. What would you say to someone that said you can hate your country and still be a patriot? 
Uh, I, I would say that I, I would love further explanation as to how the fuck that works because I, I disagree. Uh, I, I don't know how that's possible. You well, know? we are certainly going to get more into that in the next episode. I'm just teeing you up, baby. Don't you worry about it. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, retired Navy SEALs need to stop writing so many books? I would say uh, wh- whoever that person is, is entitled to your opinion, uh, you know, but but so am I, you know, so you get to have that opinion. And anybody who wants to write a book, including former U.S. Navy SEALs, is entitled to their opinion. You're entitled to buy it or, or to not buy it. You know, and that's, uh, that should be one of the nice things about this country. You get to have your opinion. I get to have mine. That's right. It should be that way. All right, just a few more left. What would you say to someone that said, why does Mike Ritlin swear so much? Uh, you know, I'd say it's none of your fucking business. Uh, <laughs> that's just how I talk. Uh, I mean, there's times where I swear more than others where I'm more conscious of it or whatever. What I will say to the critics, um, and most people aren't going to take it this way, but take it as a compliment that if I feel comfortable enough around you to be myself, then I'm swearing. So if you don't hear me swear at all, that means that I'm not comfortable enough around you to be myself. So, uh, you know, take, take it how you want. Well, you definitely trust me. I can say that. All right. What would you say to someone that said, I like cats? I would say I like cats too. Uh, I don't like them as much as dogs, but uh, I don't have any. And I, and I probably wouldn't other than a, a good Mauser, uh, out at the uh, out of the kennel facility that, that keeps the riffraff down. But, uh, I, you know, I, I truly do love all animals. Uh, some I, I prefer more than others, but I love all of them, uh, you know, and, and advocate, uh, you know, for the for the fair and equitable treatment of, of all of them. Uh, I really do. You know, I, I think one of the, the I think it was Gandhi that said, you know, you can tell a lot by their by a nation, by how it treats its animals, something to that effect. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat animals in general and anybody that's like, Oh, I love dogs, but fuck cats. You know, to me, that, that's just a weird imbalance, uh, you know, in terms of your, uh, your empathy towards other living creatures. But all right. Last one here. What would you say to someone that said Epstein didn't kill himself? <laughs> I'd say, I think you're on to something <laughs> for anyone that doesn't understand what just happened. The reason why you say Epstein didn't kill himself. And I'm talking to the people listening or watching this right now is because Mike Ridlin busted that out on Fox news on waters world. So give us a little bit behind that because I'll put the link in the show notes so people can see what you did, but that's kind of what shot this thing to superstardom as a meme. Well, you know? Yeah. I mean, sort of, I, I will, I would say that, I, I mean, I had seen memes about it prior to saying that. And I remember, I think it was Joe Rogan talked about, um, talked about it to, to some extent and had posted a few things. Uh, and, and so that, you know, I, I don't, take credit or think that I started it. I, I think quite the contrary. I mean, it, it was a collective thing, but um, it was actually after the, the Baghdadi raid, uh, you know, I'd done a, a bunch of national level interviews, uh, you know, to talk about dogs and, and how they're used and, and kind of what, what that whole story was because it was relevant at the time. And, and I was on Waters World on Fox News and it was a pre-recorded thing. That's the thing where I think a lot of people don't don't realize that, uh, that, you know, that, that wasn't a live segment. Uh, it was, it was aired, you know, two days prior and, uh, and they aired it anyway, which I was very surprised, but, uh, I just, I felt like, uh, like the interview was, was kind of a joke. Like he was asking just kind of dumb questions about, <laughs> about dogs and trying to be funny about it. And to me, it was like, Hey, this is what I do for a living. Uh, B it's a pretty serious fucking subject when you're talking about, you know, our nation's, you know, finest fucking warriors and, and their, canine counterparts, you know, going halfway across the world and, and putting their lives on the line in, in very austere environments. 
uh, and you're just kind of taking it lightly and scoffing at it. So it, it just kind of pissed me off. <clears throat> and so the the PSA that I did at the end was was authentic in, in that, you know, because of that raid, I'd gotten a lot of questions about, you know, puppies and buying dogs. And now all of a sudden everybody wants, you know, the same breed of dog that, that helped take down the ISIS kingpin or whatever. And, uh, and so I was just trying to say, hey, given this platform or mouthpiece, I, I want to you know, kind of highlight the fact that if you're going to get one of these dogs, you got to know what you're doing. Uh, and, or, you know, if you want one and you don't know what you're doing, just buy a, a finished fully trained one from a professional and, and don't buy a puppy and, and then what have you, just kind of a cautionary tale. But then at the, at the end of it, it, it was legitimately completely off the cuff. It's not something that I thought about doing ahead of time. It was just, he, he had kind of pissed me off <coughs> during the interview a little bit. And so I was really just kind of messing with him. Uh, you know, and so I threw that in there at the end of it, just as a joke, uh, also assuming that they're probably not going to air it anyway. Um, and he did, or they did, you know, so, um, a couple nights later on Saturday night, I mean, I think we taped it on a Thursday or Friday and then uh, a few, few days later, Saturday night, uh, it aired and, and I'm not shitting you. I mean, within eight seconds of, of that being on there, my phone just was blowing up. And for like the next, <clears throat> I'd say better part of a month. Uh, it was just, it was incessant. I mean, people I hadn't heard from in, in 20 years were like, dude, I just saw you on TikTok on, you know, it was, it was all over like Twitter and TikTok and, uh, and all that crap, you know? So, uh, it was just, uh, it was a weird, it was a weird 15 minutes of fame for sure. But, uh, you know, shit, that's, that's life, I guess. But wait, well, hey, thank you for keeping that going. I'm so glad that we know the source of all this at this point, but Hey, that is more time than you bargained for, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest before we let you go? No, no, I think, uh, I think I'm all set. I appreciate the offer though. All right, Mike Ridland, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life, of man's podcast. Absolutely. Looking forward to the next one. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed part one of my time with Mike Ridland. I just got to tell you the second one is going to blow your mind. It's going to be a lot of fun. This one was fun. We, we did all the stuff that we needed to do. He's a very interesting guy. He's a lot, got a lot of great stories, but guys, you're not going to want to miss part two. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness, specifically by providing content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Mike's website. I've also got a link to Mike's Amazon page so you can go check out all his books and then also Mike's YouTube channel. And then I've got that clip of him saying that Epstein didn't kill himself on air with Fox News. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. You can also check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming. Just go to www.undaunted.life undaunted.life and we also want to thank the band august burns red for allowing us to use their music for our content the intro outro track on this podcast is their song cutting the ties which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah <laughs>